Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So welcome to Bergen Park Church. My name is Jason, and I'm, I'm glad you're here today. If you want to grab a Bible, we are in, we're in Mark chapter 3, and we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus. And today, if you're new to church or maybe new to the Bible, this is a challenging story. It's probably not the first place I turn to. One of the reasons we go through books of the Bible is we're forced to deal with what Jesus teaches and not just what's easy to walk through, but really what God has shown us through the life and the ministry of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 3, we're going to walk into a story in which The question about Jesus' identity, it's coming to a head. See, the question that Mark asked, the Gospel of Mark, the question it's asking is, who is Jesus? And in verse 1, he tells us. If you look at Mark 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, the Christ, meaning the Messiah, who is the Son of God. So Mark tells us. He lets us know right from the beginning, this is who Jesus is. But what we get to do as we read the Gospel is we walk with Jesus And then we notice how people encounter him and we start seeing the questions that people are asking. And we get to ask the question too, who is is this Jesus? And maybe you haven't made a decision about who Jesus is. And that's where the gospel of Mark is taking us. And we see a lot of conflict. And there's a lot of conflict around Jesus and who he claims to be. A lot of conflict with the religious leaders. But as we're going to see today, there's also conflict in his own family. We're going to see three pictures or three theories about the identity of Jesus. One's going to come from his family. The second's going to come from the religious leaders. And then we're going to hear from Jesus himself. Now, during World War II, there was a scholar, Oxford scholar, great author and teacher. You may know his name, C.S. Lewis. And during World War II, what he spent his time doing was really teaching the soldiers the Royal Air Force, and he was, he was talking about the basics of the Christian faith, and all of those lectures were written into a, a book called Mere Christianity. And one of the reasons that C.S. Lewis taught the way he did was he was concerned about a specific argument that maybe you have heard or maybe you even believe. And the argument is that Jesus was just simply a good moral teacher, and that's all he was. And see, C.S. Lewis was frustrated with that because when you go to the Gospels, it's very hard to come to that conclusion unless you're going to erase entire sections of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Because Lewis would say to really read the Gospels, to recognize what Jesus said and what Jesus did leads to a conclusion that he couldn't simply be a great moral teacher. Instead, he said, you come to one of three conclusions. One, the guy was absolutely nuts. Because to claim the things that he claimed, and if he didn't, if he, if, if he said those types of things, a person like that wouldn't say, you know, I am the creator of the universe, I'm the judge of the universe, I'm the one that forgives and makes things right. That seems like a crazy statement, if it's not who he was. The other conclusion, he's not just insane, but maybe Jesus was a liar. He was evil. He was immoral. He knew what he was saying wasn't true. But he said it anyways. And then Lewis' final conclusion is maybe, possibly, could he been the Lord himself? 
the one who is worthy of all obedience and honor and glory. Who is Jesus? Well, today, we kind of come to the conclusion of these three ideas. And so we're going to watch them come together. And then Jesus is going to say something pretty surprising about what it means to be part of his family. Because really, this whole passage, before we read it, it really is structured around the question of what is or who is the family of Jesus. And you're going to notice this because what's going to happen is the family of Jesus is going to come, his literal family, his mother, his brothers are going to come to him and they're going to try to rescue him because they think he's crazy. And then at the end of this story, almost like, like bookends, Jesus is going to come back to the question of family and in the middle is the main idea. Does that make sense? Start with family, the middle is the main idea, and he's going to end with family. But all of it is to show us what does it mean to be the family of God? How do we live that out? And in the middle, it's going to get a little muddy. Because we're going to start talking about the demonic and Satan and a strong man. So you better, you better lock in. Let's get ready. Let's jump into it. We're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse, in verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. You guys ready? I hope so. I don't know if I am. And then he went home, and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him. And he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end, he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you first bind the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. So truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother, your brothers, they're outside, they're seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, would you pray for me? Let me pray for you, Father. We want to simply uh, sit at your feet. You are the God of rest. You are the God of peace. And yet we live in a world of war. And so we pray, Father, over Israel and Palestine, we pray for peace. That the same peace that could calm warring factions could also, it could calm our hearts. To know that you're Lord over all things and yet evil seems to reign and it's hard for us to reconcile the challenges in this world. But we, we want to come before the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords. Would you speak 
And Father, would we find ourselves after this time simply being with you, loving you, and knowing you. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so two theories. One from his family, who is Jesus, and what do they say? Did you notice? His own mom. Has your own mom ever said to you, you're insane? His brothers, you're nuts. Jesus, Jesus disappointed his family. Jesus, you're out of your mind. You notice what they try to do in verse 21? They try to take charge of him. It means they try to, try to take hold of him. They tried to grasp him and control him. They couldn't figure Jesus out, his own family. That's the first conclusion. He's, he's lost his mind. And then look at verse 22. Then these teachers, they come down from Jerusalem, which is very intentional. And what do they say about the power that Jesus exhibits? Where does it come from? Now, if you don't know this name, Beelzebub, it's a pretty weird word. We're not exactly sure what it comes from, but it means Satan. It means the demonic. It's saying, Jesus, we don't know where your power comes from. We can't deny what you're doing, but at the heart of it, the source of it, it's evil. So two theories. He's insane. He's evil. Now we're going to see Jesus' assessment in the middle section in which he describes who he truly is. But Jesus did make, I mean, he made some pretty radical claims. Up to this point, we're in chapter 3, and a number of times Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's an important Old Testament concept. And in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man was one who had the authority of God, somebody who was given authority. It's someone who was prophesied to come that would come in the authority of God, and he would judge all things. But he would also suffer, and then God would vindicate him. So Jesus is saying, hey, you know the guy who's going to judge all things from the book of Daniel? That's me. I'm that guy. I'm the creator. I am the judge. I can forgive sin. Now, what does that mean? All sin is against me. Jesus claims to forgive sin. He claims to make people clean, to bring them back into community. Jesus claims to cast out demons. If you're sitting next to someone and, said, and that person was saying to you, I'm the creator of the universe, okay, it's good to meet you. I hold all truth. I define good and evil. I have all authority and all power. I'll tell you, if you're next to that kind of person, it's going to be a pretty short conversation. You're going to say, all right, go sell your crazy somewhere else. I think I'm full up. A person who makes claims like this cannot be just simply a moral teacher. Can we, can we see that? A person who makes claims to be God or to know all truth, to, to be the judge of all things, can't simply be a moral teacher. And that's why his family goes, maybe he's insane. And it's why the religious leaders say, no, he's not simply insane. Jesus is demonic. Because the religious leaders have determined that Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to their power. And did you notice, one thing that's really fascinating about Mark's gospel is the one group of people, you could say, that gets Jesus right every time are the demons. In verse 11, you go back in, in chapter 3, verse 11. It's interesting what Mark does is he has these questions that humans ask and the demons answer. And, and in verse 11, notice what it says. And wherever the un, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried, You are the Son of God. Jesus is God incarnate. He is God's 
son. And where the presence of God is, evil shows up. Evil doesn't show up around me the same way it does around Jesus. But where the presence of God is, darkness gets exposed. And that's why you see a lot of demons around Jesus. And they say, you're the son of God. Now, who said that first? Remember Mark 1 verse 1? Mark's telling us this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. The demons know who Jesus is. And so is he insane? Is he demonic? Or we can go to Jesus' answer in verses 23 through 27. And this gets into this midst of Beelzebub and demons and strong men. And there's a lot here. And I wish I could spend an hour, but you'd be tired and wouldn't want to be here. So can you just, let's jump into it. Verse 23. Watch what happens. And so he's talking to these religious leaders and he speaks to them. He called to them and he said in a parable. So he's going to give illustrations that illustrate a, a point, a truth. And he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Because they're saying you are demonic. Okay, if I'm demonic and I'm casting out demons, then I'm, I'm working against myself. Because if a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, you've probably heard that before, right? That's where it comes from. If your house is divided, that house is going to have chaos. It can't stand. Verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. This is dumb, guys. Come on. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless you first bind up the strong man who lives in the house. And then, indeed, he may plunder the house. So here's what he's describing. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I can't follow the whole loop. But he's saying the world, picture the world as a house. Or picture the world as a kingdom. And there is a prince, an evil prince, who's over this kingdom. Or there is a strong man who is, who's over the house. He rules. Now, this strong man who is over this house, this evil prince who is over the kingdom, no kingdom has ever conquered by attacking itself. No king is ever won by destroying his own army. So if, if Jesus is actually demonic, it doesn't make sense that he's healing and he's restoring and he's, he's casting out demons. Because a kingdom divides itself, it cannot stand. But if the world is a kingdom or the world is a house and there's a strong man over the house, the idea is the people in the house, they're being plundered. They're enslaved. They're under the authority you could say, of the strong man. Now, this is going back all the Old Testament to Genesis that when our original human beings, they sinned, they came under the authority of a fallen angel. That fallen angel is, is Satan. And they surrendered from God's authority. We're creating the image of God, which means to be under his authority and power. We belong to him. But see, what we did was we surrendered. Sin is not just making mistakes. It's a transfer of allegiance. I will determine good and evil for myself. I will be the center of all things. Well, the first person to come up with that was this angel, Satan. And so now we are under the authority. I know this is a lot to follow. Under the authority of the strong man. And those who are under the authority of the strong man cannot set themselves free. They're under a king, under a kingdom, and they can't get out. So what do they need? They need someone stronger to come in and to liberate them. Do you see that picture? This is a parable that he's describing a situation. And we need someone who's stronger who can come in. Because notice verse 27. But no one. But no one. No one can, can plunder. No, no, one, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods. We're powerless 
against the strong man. Unless he first binds up that man, then you can get in and you can plunder his house. What is Jesus saying? I am the one who is stronger than the strong man. I am the Lord, he's saying, of the universe. This is my house. This guy has moved in unjustly and I am casting him out. This is my kingdom and I am casting out the unjust prince. Jesus is the Lord of the universe. He's claiming to be God, to have all authority and all power. And he's saying, I'm the only one who can set you free. That's, that's not a good moral teacher, is it? I mean, that's either crazy or it's evil or maybe it could be true. Now, what does it mean to plunder the strong man? This, again, gets us in a lot of deep territory, but really, if you just follow the context, verse 28, I gotta bind up the strong man, right? Verse 27, well, how do you bind the strong man? Truly, I say to you, verse 28, and we're gonna get into something, some territory that may, may concern you a little bit about this unforgiven, this sin that you can't be forgiven. Have you ever heard of that before? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. How does Jesus overcome the strong man? Part of it is he has the authority to forgive. He has the authority to unleash and unloose the power of the strong man. The power of the strong man is in the lie, essentially. You know, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. He deceives us about our own identity, our own value, and our own worth, but through the gospel, our identity is not in what we do, it's our identity is in Christ. And so the lies of the evil, the power of the evil one enslaving us has been broken through the cross of Jesus. I can't unpack that all, but that's the idea. But notice for a minute, what sins can Jesus forgive in verse 28? Do you notice some of the words? What sins, can he forgive some? It says he can forgive all. And then notice, this is even deeper. Whatever, do you know what blasphemy is? It's to condemn God. God's saying to you, I can forgive anything you say against me. Don't, it's not greater than me. Realize what God can say, I can forgive all things and anything you say against me, I can forgive. So what's to follow is not an exception. Except for this sin, right? All sin means all sin. Whatever blasphemies means whatever. What's to follow is not an exception. What it is, it's an explanation. What cannot be forgiven? Well, let me give you just a couple of examples of what it cannot mean. And, and, and first of all, let me read this quote to you by a guy named Charles Cranfield, a British theologian in the 20th century, and he says this. He says, it's a matter of great importance pastorally that we can say with absolute confidence to anyone who is overwhelmed by the fear that he has committed the unpardonable sin. The fact that he is so troubled is itself a sure proof that he is not committed it. So what is this blasphemy? Well, if you go to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7 is the story of the church after Jesus is resurrected and the gospel's going out and then Jesus' disciples, they start sharing the gospel. One of those disciples is a guy named Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church and what he's doing is he's preaching and he's standing before these religious leaders and they are just scoffing at him, they're condemning him and eventually they're going to stone him. But before that happens, listen to what Stephen says. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 51. 
And he says to those who are gathered, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So are you. Now, what's important about that is there's this, this guy in the crowd who's persecuting the church, who hates Jesus and is gonna celebrate when Stephen is killed and martyred. Do you know what his name is? Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. So whatever blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, it's not resisting the Spirit. Because see, when Jesus shows up to Saul, when Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, Saul hated the church, hated Jesus, hated Christians. He killed them. Can that not be forgiven? Jesus says it can. Because when he shows up in Acts chapter 9, Jesus confronts Saul And watch what happens. Acts 9, verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice. This is Saul hearing a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, well, who are you? I don't know who this is. I must be dreaming, you know. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Hey, the hatred you have, you have towards me, but it can be forgiven. So whatever blasphemy towards the Holy Spirit is, it's not what Paul experienced. And then I think we all know Peter. You know, Peter had an opportunity to stand for Christ, right? Three times. And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to pray for you. Satan wants to sift you. And yet, Peter still falls. He denies Jesus before man. He doesn't acknowledge God before humans. And yet, what does Jesus do? Is it unforgiven? No, he restores him. So whatever blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, it's not condemning Jesus, It's not rejecting Jesus. It's the refusal to accept the forgiveness of Jesus. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, in the end, it's an ultimate rejection of Jesus. Not for just a moment or even for a decade or maybe you're in your 60s and 70s and you don't believe in Christ. Well, the reason this is here is it's a warning. Don't reject Jesus. Jesus, don't reject the one who has authority to set you free from sin, to set you free from rebellion, to set you free to become fully who God has created you to be. It's it's a warning. It's a warning. Don't reject the grace of God. Sometimes I think we believe that our pursuit of Jesus is something we create in ourselves. I don't know if you've had that experience where maybe your eyes have been opened and you started to say, maybe there's something to this Jesus this Jesus story. Maybe he could be God incarnate. As you start studying what it means, you get into scripture and the Holy Spirit starts to convict you. When that conviction comes, that's not something you create on your own that you can reject right now and then write, hey, I'll come back because I've, I've said this when I was younger. I want to have my fun now and I'll do my Jesus thing later when I need that. That's what he's warning against. Now, in the context, they're literally saying Jesus is demonic. They're rejecting him outright, but we can simply reject him by rejecting the work of the Spirit in our life and saying, hey, I can come back to this later. He's saying, don't reject the grace of God. Why? Because that becomes an eternal consequence. That as Christians, we are judged in the past. We're judged in Christ, not for what we have done. Our our judgment day was in the past on the cross, But when we reject him, our judgment day is in the future and he gives us what we we deserve. We rebelled against him. We've surrendered to another authority. 
We've given ourselves over to the power of the strong man, but Jesus says, my grace sets you free. And he's just saying, receive it. Receive it. Jesus' assessment of himself, I'm not crazy. (laughs) I'm not insane. I'm not evil. I'm the Lord of the universe. I'm the Lord of the universe. And how did he express, and I want you to, maybe if you're struggling with the identity of Jesus, how does Jesus express his authority and power? By dying for his enemies. The expression of Jesus, his ultimate expression, the place we understand who Jesus is, where is it? Church. We wear it, right? We wear the cross. Because in Mark's gospel, the first time someone sees Jesus and understands who he is, it's at the foot of the cross. That's where the Roman centurion says, oh my goodness, you guys have totally missed it. Truly, this is the son of God. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Jesus came to take the penalty that we deserve, the wrath of God falling on him so that I might receive his grace, his love, his peace. I might be set free because I have rebelled and I have turned away from God. But through Christ, I am forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm given a new identity, not based on what I've done, but based solely on what Jesus has done. I am free, I am free. On the cross, Jesus, and hear me on this, forever changes what it means to defeat evil. On the cross, Jesus forever changes what it means to defeat evil. So sit in that for a moment. And let's rewind to the end. What does it mean to be the family of God? Because remember, his family comes. Hey, and they're saying he's nuts. And then he concludes with this question about what does it mean to be in Jesus' family? Well, part of being in Jesus' family (laughs) is acknowledging who Jesus is. He's Lord. He's not insane. He's not evil. He's Lord. But watch what happens in verses 33 and following. And he answered them. Because his mother and brothers are outside. Hey, Jesus, come on. Come on out. We want to hang out. We want to talk to you. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then notice, he says, looking about those who sat around him. So there's people sitting around him in this house. And he said, hey, look, these people sitting here, that's my mother. That's my brother. Whoever does the will of God is my mother and sister and brother. Notice he says, whoever does. So there's some action that's taking place. What's the action That's taking place. Now, the action, he says, is doing the will of God. That can mean a lot of things. That can mean obedience to God, obedience to Jesus. But notice, what is the simple meaning in the passage? What are they doing? They're sitting at the feet of Jesus. Who is Jesus' family? It's those who sit at his feet. To sit at his feet is to surrender. Remember Mary and Martha, that whole story? Sisters, right? Jesus coming to town, dinner time. What's Martha doing? Getting it done. I need a Martha, right? I need Martha to come to my house, cook me some dinner. We love us some Marthas. But what's Mary doing? Martha gets angry because Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. He's like, can you get her to help me? There's stuff to do. And he says, hey, one thing's necessary, right? I'm not gonna take that away from she's chosen the right thing. The family of God is identified by those ultimately, first and foremost, who simply sit at the feet of Jesus. That's the work they do. Now, there's more than that, isn't it? But that's where it starts. Not with changing your life and cleaning yourself up. Discipleship starts by simply being, again, with Jesus. John 6, verse 28. 
Watch this in John 6, verse 28. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he answered him, this is the work. This is what you do. Believe. And what? Who I am. The one that God has sent, that I am Lord of the universe to, to release you from the darkness of sin and brokenness. Those who belong to Jesus' family are simply those who sit around him. But see, beyond that, there are also those who continue the work of the family business. And what is the work of Jesus' family business? Did you notice? Go back to that center story. It's plundering the strong man's house. The work of Jesus, the way he defeats evil, what's the one thing evil cannot overcome? Think about that for a minute. The answer is it cannot overcome good. Evil cannot overcome good. Jesus forever has shown us a new way of defeating evil. He plunders the strong man's house. Now, what does it look like to plunder the strong man's house? Well, it looks like the cross, right? That's where Jesus looked like when, for the disciples, right? When the disciples are at the cross, what do they do, guys? They, they take off, right? This is a mess. They run. Why? He's getting, Jesus is getting plundered. Doesn't it look like that? Come on. He's, he's bound. He's plundered. He's defeated. He's judged. But through that, he's not plundered. No. No, he's setting captives free. What seems to be defeat becomes victory. And you know, when you read the New Testament, you see the ethics of the church. It looks like defeat, guys. This don't work. Jesus, if somebody tells me to go one mile, I'm going one mile. No, I don't want you to go one mile with an evil man. I want you to walk two. That doesn't make any sense. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. What does that look like? Plundering, doesn't it? I'm bound. I'm losing. I'm not, I'm not getting ahead. And throughout the New Testament, you see these long passages of what it looks like to live out in the authority of God through the power of the Spirit. One of those, and I'm going to close with this, is Romans 12. I want you to sit this week. Beautiful picture of what it looks like to plunder the strong man. Watch what he says in Romans 12. What does it look like? What, what turns evil on its head? What turns the world upside down? What shows the character of the God we worship? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Would you want to be a part of a community like that? Everyone's just like, man, you're great. No, you're great. No, you're great. Constantly, and this is not falsehood. This is legitimate celebrating the gifts of others, loving one another. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Show up Wednesday night for the taco truck. <laughs> That's what he's saying there. Anyways. No, he's not. But anyway, he may be saying that. He may be saying that. And then notice, what, what turns evil upside down? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But you notice, 
and this is important for weep with those who weep. Do we differentiate? I'm not weeping with you. I'm only weeping with you. No, he says just where you see a mother who has lost her children, sit with her, love her, regardless of ethnicity, background, politics, we weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate yourself with the lowly. That means like the poor. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. Uh -uh, Sorry, I got lost. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought. There it is. To do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, hey, feed him. Invite him to your house. Give him something to drink. For by doing this, you're heaping burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. This language of heaping burning coals is military language. It's literally what they would do, right? When you came against the castle, what would you do? You'd throw burning coals. How do you overcome evil? There's only way. It's through the cross. It's by overcoming evil with good. So when somebody wrongs you, what do you want to do? Can we just be honest? Maybe your heart's different than mine. When somebody hurts me, I want to hurt you back. Why? I'm under the authority of a strong man. How do I break free? Only through Jesus Christ. I recognize when I cursed him, he did not curse me. He blessed me. I am no longer under the authority of the strong man. When somebody slanders you, what do you want to do? What's the most natural human thing? Can we just be honest for a minute? We're in church. We can do that. You want to slander them back. What do you see on the news? What do you see in politics? What do our best, I guess we call them, our best leaders do? Slander. Is that going to change the world? Is that going to change another human? What, what, who, who in here has changed their mind because somebody just cussed you out and tore you up? No. It doesn't work that way. How does evil get overcome? Not by cursing, but through blessing. It's turning the values of the world. This is the life God has called us to live. Why? Because that's the God, the heart of the God we serve. Vengeance is not mine. It's not my job to determine what you get. My job is to show you hospitality regardless of how you've treated me because you don't know how I treated Jesus. I rejected him. I cursed him. I was at enmity with God. And what did he do? How did he express his power and authority as Lord of the universe? He forgave me by taking on himself the punishment I deserve, the penalty for my sins. That is the character of the God who Jesus represents. And the way that we undo Satan's power in the world is the same way that Jesus lived out his life, not coming to be served, but to serve. And to love those who are around us because Jesus is the center of that. Because if you're going to live this life, you're going to need you some Jesus and you're going to need to sit at his feet. Because you're going to get hurt in this world, right? And it's hard to walk in this path unless you have a God who indwells you, who's shown you that path and has forgiven you and redeemed you and given you a spirit that you may walk in his power and his grace. Guys, that's the Christian life. The world needs that today. Vengeance breeds vengeance. The only thing evil cannot overcome. The only thing it cannot overcome, even though it looks like you're being bound or you're being plundered, 
is good. And we see good in the gospel. We see good in Jesus. Let's, let's sit at his feet this week. And when you see the evil of the world, would you just say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, show me what it means to respond, not with vengeance, but instead in a way that reflects who you are. And maybe that's just simply in your own families or in your community or out in the world. Would we this week see the way of Jesus as the way of life? If you didn't grab the communion elements when you came in, I want to encourage you to do that. It's okay. I didn't get them. I should have got them. Should be prepared. I'm not prepared. And so if you didn't grab the communion elements, guys, they're available. Please, please get up as those are right now. Would you get up and just grab those? The reason we conclude with communion is communion reminds us of the gospel. The story of Jesus, that our life is hidden with Christ. And why? Because his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we might be forgiven, we might be covered, we might have a new identity. And so what we're gonna do in the next few moments, just hold those elements together and whatever God's stirring in you, would you give it to him? Would you spend that time reflecting on what he has for you? And then after a period of, of silence or prayer, we're gonna receive those elements together.